If I can have all of the important people come down to the front and have a seat, that would be great. If you are in fifth grade or younger, you are invited down for our children's chat at this time. They don't have to come down. It's a free country. It's a free country. <laughs> Bye, Tatum. We love you. How are y'all doing this morning? Doing well? All right. Um, let's see. I want to read a Bible verse to you. And this is going to sound a little weird. But in this Bible verse, so if, if um, let's say, Izzy, that your dad says to your mom, you are the rose of my life. What does he, what does he mean by that? Yeah, you, try, you should try that sometime. Izzy, what would he mean by that if he said that to her? Was he, would he be trying to be nice? Okay. And what would it mean? Okay. That she's beautiful, right? And that her, her fragrance is wonderful. So she's beautiful. She's wonderful. Maybe occasionally a little thorny. I don't know. Just kidding. Love you, Christy. Um, no, but, but we're going to stick with the positive, right? So he's trying to say to her that he loves her and that he thinks she's beautiful and wonderful, right? So in the verse I'm about to read you, there's, God uses a word, it's, it's the word mountain, but he doesn't mean like a great big actual mountain. He's talking about a person, and he's trying to tell us what kind of a person this is that God is going to send to bring us forgiveness for our sins. So he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. What is that saying? You don't know. What would God mean by on a mountain... It's not actually a mountain, it's a person. He's going to prepare a feast for all kinds of people. What does that mean? When you go to a feast, what do you find? A lot of food. And what does food do for you? You can eat it, and if you eat the right kinds of food, what happens? You grow, right? You're healthy, it gives you life, it gives you joy to see all kinds of good food. So, here you go, Zoe. Can you open that for me? Oh, sure. Oh, it's bedazzled. It is bedazzled. And can you read what it says? It says, everyone's invited. Everyone's invited. And I'm coming to the party you're throwing for me. And I'm coming to the party you're throwing for me. So you have been invited to a, a banquet, right? Oh. Yes, and you're going there. You're going there right now. Actually, we're having a party for you. Okay, and the party represents God's love for you. 
that he loves you and he invites you to this banquet where you can enjoy being with him, being with each other, being part of his family for how long? Forever. Forever. All right, I think you get it. Can I pray for you guys before you go to Hope for Kids today? I'm sorry, before you go to your banquet. All right. Dear God, bless these precious children. Fill them with your Holy Spirit as they study more of your word and at their banquet today. Um, just remind them of how much you love them, of how much they mean to you, and of how much you want them to enjoy their relationship with you. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Lead them into a deeper understanding of your love for them through Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great time at your banquet. Take it with you. Jen, did I do that right? They're actually having a banquet, right? Okay, good. All right. Okay. Happy noises? We'll take it. We'll take it. I can preach through happy noises. Yes. It's the blood-curdling screams that get me. So, Will you all join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for God's Word this morning? God, our loving Father, as we come before you and open your Word, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us this morning through your eternal and living Word, that we might be able to come before your word with a clean heart. And so to that end, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts, our sins, our sorrows, our disappointments. And we pray that you would deal with all of those aspects of our lives that we um, bring to you so that we might be free to encounter you here through your word this morning. And so, Father, uh, we give you those relationships in our lives that are strained, We pray for your peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift before you those whom we know and love who are sick, who are facing uncertain diagnoses or recovering from medical procedures. We pray your healing mercies over them. We think especially of our uh, founding member, Dean Morris, and just pray your continued healing over his body. We lift up Yolanda Clifton and her recovery from surgeries, and we just pray your healing over her. We lift up Joshua Johnson and pray your continued healing mercies over him. And we lift up all the others that we know who are sick or in need of healing, and we lift them to you now. Lord, we lift up uh, our country and our leaders at every level of government elected and appointed, and we pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We pray for those men and women who are serving sacrificially to defend our constitution and we pray that you would watch over and protect them we pray especially for those who are in harm's way and we ask that you would bring them home safely we lift up the world in which we live and the chaos that seems to reign so often we pray for the people of ukraine and we pray that your church there would be a voice of your light and your hope and your peace in the midst of war lord uh, just Your peace, we pray, over that region of our world in Jesus' name. And Father, we lift up your church uh, there, here, and everywhere, and we just pray that your word would continue to go forth 
through the mouths of your people and that it would not return to you empty. We lift especially those churches that we are connected to that are uh, being started right now in Texas, in our denomination, in Katy, in New Braunfels, and in Austin. And we just pray your continued blessing over those young works. And we lift up our missionaries around the world that we support in Guatemala, in Laredo, Texas, in Cuba, in Beirut, Lebanon, and elsewhere in the Middle East. And we just pray that you would pour out your spirit upon those works and bless them in what they are doing for you. And so, Lord, we turn our hearts now towards your word and ask you to speak to us through your holy word by the power of your Holy Spirit. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So... We are in the, in the midst of a series of messages where we are kind of working our way through the book of Isaiah. And the first 12 chapters, uh, we, we started this series in January. We want, we want to be at Isaiah chapter 53 for Easter Sunday. And so we're kind of having to skip through some sections of the book of Isaiah. And I'm going to try to explain what we're trying to do um, so in those first 12 chapters, there's this significant uh, weaving of the three themes of Isaiah. And those three themes are this, this idea that our sin, that, that my sin separates me from God. So this theme of separation as the result of sin. There's another theme of salvation. And somehow Isaiah is able to see aspects of the Messiah hundreds of years before he is born. And it's, it's, it's truly miraculous, some of the things that Isaiah perceives and writes in the time period in which he lived. And then there's this theme, this third theme of eternal sanctuary or eternal rest that is ours through the work of the Messiah. So the Messiah sees our state of separation, he, he acts to bring about salvation from our state of separation, and he ushers us into a state of eternal rest. And so these are the themes that have been uh, sort of woven in and out of those first 12 chapters, and they, they continue throughout the book. Then in chapter 13, the author, Isaiah, takes a little bit of a, of a turn and he is, he is focusing on expressing God's judgment against sin. And let me just take you through some of the chapter headings here, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to make sense out of this and why I'm doing this. But um, chapter 13 is just, there's a chapter heading. This isn't, the chapter headings are not scripture. They're just somebody's summary of what you're about to read. So chapter 13, the summary in my Bible says, The Judgment of Babylon. Uh, chapter 14 talks about the restoration of Judah. And then chapter 15 goes into an oracle concerning Moab, more judgment against a foreign nation. Uh, 17, an oracle concerning Damascus, more uh, prophecy against sin in a foreign land. And then Cush in chapter 18, Egypt in chapter 19, Egypt and Cush in chapter 20. Uh, you see where this is going, right? And then back to Babylon in chapter 21, uh, and then concerning Jerusalem in chapter 22, uh, Tyre and Sidon in chapter 23. So let me ask you this. Why is God doing this? 
Why is God unrolling his judgment against all of these nations, including Israel, but, but sort of spilling out into the entire region around him? What's going on? Well, to, to answer that question, we have to know, for example, what was going on in the rest of the world spiritually at this time. So here's how ancient religion in this region worked. My people live in this valley. We worship the god of this valley. It might be an owl or a lizard or who knows, right? But that's our god. And if we go to war against the people who live on that hill over there, they worship the god of that hill over there, which might be a hawk or a snake or who knows. And if we go to, if our tribes battle each other, then whoever's god is stronger is obviously the god who won, whose people won the, the tribal battle. Well, you can take this and sort of roll this out throughout the ancient world, and all gods at this point in time are regional. They are limited geographically in their dominion. And the God of the Bible is saying, look up. Something new, is, some new reality is present among you. I am the God of everything. I'm the God who created the entire universe. I have dominion and jurisdiction over all of these tribes. And so, in, in a respect, we read these words, and we're, if you're like me, you sort of cringe at all the judgment that's unrolled from chapter 13 to 25. It's, it's a lot. But in the ancient context into which this was written, this is a majestic demonstration of God's greatness, of his sovereignty, of his dominion, of his eternal nature. He is not limited by the range of those hills or the depth of this valley or the sea or any other regional geographically contained deity. He is God Almighty. He is the God Eternal who created us all. And these same judgments that will be rolled out against all of these different kinds of people will be used later in, in the book of Isaiah to talk about the calling of all kinds of people into the hope of the Messiah as the Messiah offers his own life to satisfy God's judgment against sin for his followers. So that's the context. We're going to read... I'm, I'm going to take just an excerpt out of three or four different chapters and read them to you, and we're going to try to make some cohesive sense out of what Isaiah is doing in this section of his book. So we've been in 12 chapters since the beginning of January up until now. We're going to do over 12 chapters in one Sunday today, but I'm not going to read them all to you. That would, you, you wouldn't want that. You may read them for yourself. That's entirely encouraged. But here we go. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in Isaiah 14, and then I'm going to read ex- two, past, two, two verses there, Excerpts from Isaiah 25, 26, and then we will conclude in Isaiah chapter 27. And I think you'll get a sense of some of the high points in this section of the book. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 26, and then reading the first portion of verse 27. This is the purpose 
that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? And so you can see there in that passage this concept that God is sovereign over all life, all people, all culture, all tribes. And then we're going to jump to Isaiah chapter 25, and this is the portion where Isaiah is rolling out of all the judgment that's just been expressed towards all, all the sin in the world. And he's sort of bringing it back to this idea of the Messiah, of hope, of salvation. And so here we go. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And then from Isaiah chapter 26, verses 1 through 4. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And you can... So just to give you some context before we read from Isaiah 27, Isaiah has already prophesied that the walls of Jerusalem are coming down, that they will be torn down and Jerusalem will be exposed and vulnerable and ultimately overrun. And so now he's coming back and saying, that's not the end. The devastation that my people will face, that's not their defining moment. Their defining moment will be the restoration of hope of salvation, of joy to their existence. And so, here we go. Isaiah chapter 27, I'm going to read verse 6, and then I'm going to read verses 12 and 13. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out grain And you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Wait 
on the Lord. How good are you at that? I thought so. I figured just this is my basic operational principle. If I'm terrible at it, you're probably not great at it either. Right? Um, I, I read those words and I laugh. Like, Wait upon the Lord. Hmm, yeah, maybe for a few seconds. And then I'll probably go do what I think is best. Which is rarely <laughs> correct. Um, This truth is spoken over a people who, first of all, are not listening. The the people to whom Isaiah is speaking at this point in his work are not listening. They're not, their ears are not open, their hearts are not open. They are in full rebellion against God. And Isaiah says, wait. On the Lord. This is our, our first sort of challenge from this section of the book of Isaiah is to wait. To wait on God in the face of destruction, turmoil, devastation, to wait. And this is not what we do best. And so God is trying to get our attention here to wait on his salvation means to know that God is in control. And this is essentially the message from Isaiah chapter 13 through roughly chapter 24, 25, etc. That our God is not just the God of the valley we live in. He's the God of the universe. He's in control. He is sovereign. He is almighty. He is holy. He is so far beyond what we can possibly comprehend that it makes sense to wait on Him. And so we are called to wait on His salvation in the face of the devastation that life brings. To look not to the circumstances in which we find ourselves, but to look beyond them to the one who is in control of all things. And so, who is this God that demonstrates in these chapters that he is in control? He shows us that he is in control over all people and over all circumstances. This is the God of the universe, and he is ours through the Messiah. So we are to wait on his salvation, to know that he is in control, and to know that he is victorious. So let's go to chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. This idea that God will swallow up on this mountain. Let me try to explain the metaphor. Isaiah is in Jerusalem as he speaks. Jerusalem was built on a a series of hills that all can see each other. And on one of those hills was built the temple within which was the altar of sacrifice. And so when, when God's people would sin, they would be obligated to take an animal, probably a lamb, and they would take it 
to the priest at the temple. They would offer it up, and that lamb would literally be slaughtered right there at the temple. And, but the person would have to stand there and watch it, as if to understand intuitively that sin has very negative consequences. But God will provide, through the death of another, a, a way of salvation for us. And so Isaiah is standing in this context and pointing towards that hill with the temple on it when he says, on this mountain, God will swallow up death forever. And of course, the the mountain that he's referring to is actually more than just that hill in front of him. It's the mountain of the Messiah. It's the one who would come and be consecrated and dedicated in that temple who would then become the innocent lamb of God who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. And so that is the mountain that Isaiah is referring to, this Messiah who will come and deal with the fact that our sin has separated us from our God. So Isaiah is using incredible language that this Messiah, this mountain of a man, will swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Whoa. I'm sorry, that's a claim. Um, did anybody see uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson's over-the-top introduction at the Super Bowl this year? Right. It was a little much, right? And he's, he's sort of, you know, bruh, 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 and this is the greatest game in the world. It's like, you know, that's a bold claim for a Super Bowl because they're usually lame. But um, uh, not, not if the Packers are in. It was a good game. I don't know if it was the greatest game in the world. Well, a couple of the playoff games leading up to it were amazing, but let's not go there right now. You know, I want you just like, if you're in front of a crowd of people and you're laying claim to like what you're capable of, who says I'm going to swallow up death forever for all kinds of people? Like that's just way beyond the, the purview of what anyone can claim. I don't know how. I do know how. It was through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. But I don't know how, in human terms, Isaiah was able to know this. That there would be a Messiah who would come into this earth, into this sphere of existence, and be capable of swallowing up death forever. Whoa. And, and so this is the introduction that Isaiah is giving to the Messiah in the wake of the unrolling of God's judgment on Israel and the nations around them. And to the reader of these words, the unrolling that just happened in those chapters 13 through 25 is really kind of the whole world. It's the whole known world to them. And so this God is victorious over death and sadness, over sin and salvation. This God is the Messiah himself. 
And so that is where our waiting begins, to, to be reminded that in the face of devastation and threat, we are to wait on the God who is in control and the God who is victorious over death, sadness, sin, and salvation. And then Isaiah moves us from this state of waiting to a call to sing, to sing of our salvation, of our Savior, to enjoy the security of God's love. Did you see in those verses in chapter 26, this idea of a strong city, walls of salvation, and bulwarks, this idea that that we are protected by virtue of what the Messiah has done for us, that we enjoy a state of security spiritually that we could not attain for ourselves. And so Isaiah is rolling this out in this portion of God's Word to remind us that to enjoy the security of God's love is to rest in that love for ourselves and then to extend it to others. So in the very next verse in chapter 26, open the gates. So we've just had walls of salvation built around us for security And God says, throw open the gates. Let my people in. Spread my love, spread my word, spread my grace. This is a house whose doors are open. You're safe. You're secure. Rest. And then invite. Be part of the spreading of God's love. And so, we, for our hearts to sing must enjoy the security that God's love offers us, and we must find peace in the love of God. This is a tricky reality. I am not naturally at peace with myself, with those around me, with God, with the world. Um, I think all of us, are, are driven on our bad days through insecurities and fears and uncertainties. And what God is saying here is for those who are, who are in the devastation of life and sin and pain, look up, wait on me, and once you have seen what I have done for you, sing. Begin to sing again. Open your hearts and express what I have that, you, that comes from a place of security and a place of peace. And Isaiah tells us in verse 3 that we are to fix our minds on Him. What is the temptation in life? To fix our minds on our problems, especially on other people. What, they, what stupid things they have done. Um, or we want to focus on how badly we have done. And either way, our focus is down. And God says, no, no. Fix your minds on Him. On that God who is sovereign over everything. Be one 
who looks to him and not to your circumstances. We are to be defined by his love, by his grace, by his forgiveness, by his salvation, and not by our own fears and insecurities and whatever else may drive us. And so we are to find peace in his love, to fix our minds upon him, and to trust in the rock of our salvation. And I love this metaphor. Isaiah goes to it repeatedly. David goes to this repeatedly in the Psalms that God is like a rock. He's immovable. He's unchanging. He's solid. He's dependable. He's fixed. We have something in this chaotic world that never changes. And that's where God wants us to attach our thoughts, our hearts, our hopes. And so we are to be a people who wait on God's salvation, who sing of God's salvation, and who take root in his salvation. That this redefining of who we are, not from our circumstances, but for God's love for us, is to cause us to take root, to bear the fruit of his grace in our lives. This metaphor that that Isaiah goes to in chapter 27, this, in days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth roots in the whole world and fill the whole world with fruit. If, If you're new to this series, Isaiah has already said, Jerusalem will be swept clean as if a giant broom was taken to it. It will be swept off the face of the earth. It will be left in ruins, and it will be where there once was a city, it will be a ranch with animals grazing on whatever is growing there. And so to come back and to say that the walls of this city, what happens on this mountain will bring security and safety and peace to the hearts of God's people, and that this people from here shall take root and blossom and fill the earth with fruit is actually ludicrous. Unless the eternal, all-powerful God of the universe is behind these words. And so, we, as those who are to, to let our roots take hold of our salvation, are those who are to bear the fruit of God's grace in this world, to grow in His race, in His grace, to, to take the nourishment of His love into ourselves, and then to spread His grace, to branch out. And I, I cannot remind you of this enough. If you read these words, and you just look around this room, You are the fulfillment of this portion of God's Word. We have no business being in the family of God, being part of Israel, spiritually speaking, because we're not from there, right? We're from anywhere other than there. And yet... Exactly what God said would happen is real today. 
people are still coming into the salvation of the Messiah that was promised so many thousands of years ago. And it's all kinds of people. And it doesn't matter what your DNA is. It matters how we become redefined by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. That is our hope. That is our strength. That is the place that God wants us to dig in and find the nourishment for our souls to grow, to flourish, to blossom, and to spread his love in this world. And so we are to be those who bear that fruit and who return to the heart of God every day. I love this this verse 12 of chapter 27. And so in that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, this is the whole known world, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one. What does that mean? So, you probably already know this. You harvest wheat. You, you take the stalks. You bring them into a, a, usually a place that has a big flat rock. And you kind of beat them against that rock. And you're trying to knock off the little husk that's around the kernel of wheat. And so the wheat is harvested, beaten, (laughs) and then there are these grains. And this is an image of a God going, that one, that one, that one. Maybe even like out of the, the waste pile. Like he's got his beautiful golden mound and he looks over and he's like, it's not all out. I want that one. I want that one, right? He is intentional in selecting his people. He wants more and more of us to come into his kingdom. And so we are to be those who take root in his salvation, who bear the fruit of his grace in our lives, and who return to the heart of God to know that he is the God who wants you back. Have you ever done anything that you felt like disqualified you from God's grace? You know what God says to that? No chance. He says, I... I, I'm the God who is sovereign over all peoples. I'm the God who is sending his Messiah to be the mountain of hope in this world. I am sending my son to suffer the judgment of my wrath against sin for you. Your sin can no longer separate you from God because the Messiah died to atone for your sin. And so we are to be those who return to the heart of God, to know that he wants us back, and to stand on that mountain of hope and worship. There is no other response to what God has done for us, but that we fall to our knees, metaphorically speaking, 
and worship him. The God whose grace extends to all the earth, who knows no limits of geography or sin, he has taken that into account in his eternal plan. You are loved, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are saved, you are restored, you are held in security and grace eternally. And so we worship. Will you pray with me? God, our loving Father, we marvel at your word, at the ways in which you have woven your truth, your hope, your love and grace throughout the seasons of history to bring us to a point where we understand that you are the God who picks out each and every member of his family, whose love cannot be stopped, who is victorious over sin and death, the God upon whom we are to wait, to whom we are to sing, and in whom we are to take root, that our lives would be full of the joy of our salvation that you have provided for us through the Messiah. Lord, redefine who we are so that we are not defined by our circumstances, but rather by your love. It is in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.